Uh, I wonder how many of you, uh, perhaps, you know, students and so on who may be new to New England, how many of you, is this your first Super Bowl Sunday in New England? Okay, great. Well, welcome to the National Day of Unity, um, also known as the High Holy Day of Sports Idolatry. Okay, uh, someone was just saying that they... Uh, actually saw a video of my three grown boys um, running outside in 10-degree weather uh, at when the Patriots won uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, as they ran out, they were taking their shirts off and screaming and yelling. And the first thought was our small children of our neighbors next door. And, uh, and so our neighbor, Dave, who's a great guy, he, he comes out and he says, Hi, hi, guys. Go Pats. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, well, it's, um, we get to look at the scriptures today. I don't know if any of you uh, saw this anywhere or not, but uh, word has it that hundreds of New England pastors changed their sermon text uh, for today, that there was a, and actually a new interpretation of an ancient prophecy from the book of Daniel. It goes like this. In my vision, I looked up and saw a ram. As I was reflecting, a goat suddenly came to the ram and rushed toward it with savage force. The goat, the ram did not have strength to withstand the goat. The goat threw the ram to the ground and trampled upon it, and no one could rescue the ram from the goat. I wish I could say that was the worst misuse of Scripture I've ever heard, but it's probably not. We are doing a series here at, at Sanctuary that we're calling The Way of Life, and it reflects the fact that I think it's so important for us to grasp and to lean into is that following Jesus is not an event. It's not a religious exercise or a ceremony. It is indeed a way of life. He wants to be at the center of everything that we do and are. And we're looking particularly in the Gospel of Luke. Now, if you're fairly new to, uh, to the Bible, the, the Bible has Old Testament, Older Testament, New Testament, Hebrew Scriptures, Christian Scriptures. And uh, the, the New Testament has four of these first books called Gospels. That's a unique genre, very unique in all of uh, ancient literature. And the Gospels are not just biographies. They're not just chronological uh, events in the life of Jesus. They're particular books that were written a particular way. Each of them has a different author who comes from a different background. Each of them had a different primary audience. Each of them had a little different focus or purpose, even though there's obviously commonality and symmetry. In the midst of all of that, we believe firmly as followers of Jesus and historically in the church of Jesus Christ that even though these books were written by human authors, they were divinely inspired. God breathed. God's fingerprints are all over these books. They really are the word of God and therefore have ultimate authority for who Jesus is. They can be trusted Deeply, and we don't have time to go into that subject, but uh, 
After several decades of looking and studying this book, uh, I've become more and more convinced of the authenticity and the authority of Scripture in our lives. So we're going to have uh, time to look first, just part of the story that we're going to be looking at today. In Luke chapter 5, last week Andrew uh, introduced chapter 5 where you have Jesus meeting and calling the first disciples to actually leave their fishing nets and to follow him to be fishers of people. And in the process, he does an incredible sign of a miraculous catch of fish. And they are more than amazed. They are humbled and with reverent awe, they follow him. That's followed by the healing of a leper. And then the account that we have today, another amazing and wonderful story. But before that story, there's a little interlude, a little parenthesis that says something about Jesus as well. So let's read that. We're going to read the first part of uh, Luke. This is chapter 5, uh, 15 to 19. Why don't we just read this uh, together out loud? Reading together. But the news about him spread even more, and large crowds were gathering together to hear him and to be healed of their illnesses. And yet Jesus himself frequently withdrew to the wilderness and prayed. Now on one of those days, while he was teaching, there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting nearby, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Just then, some men showed up, carrying a paralyzed man on a stretcher, and they were trying to bring him in and place him before Jesus. But since they found no way to carry him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down on the stretcher through the roof tiles right in front of Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Now, a little bit about the story. Before we get to the story, I want you to notice something, what Jesus did. This is the beginning of the, what's called the year of popularity, three years of Jesus' public ministry. And the first could be called the year of popularity. The crowds are growing and enormous for this kind of setting. He's becoming a teacher who is drawing crowds, and not just because of his teaching, which is with authority, but also he's doing works of healing. So both his authority and his compassion is becoming well-known. And that's drawing a lot of crowds. But right here in the middle of the crowds, in the middle of the busyness of all the opportunities to touch people's lives, it says Jesus did something. Matter of fact, it says that he often did it. He would often do what? Withdraw from the crowd. In Mark's gospel, uh, it, the disciples get a little irritated. They're right in the middle of sort of the you know, momentum of, of crowds of people. And Jesus says, I'm going to go into the wilderness again and just have time alone with my Father and pray. Jesus withdrew. He was not fed by the crowds. He was fed by communion with the Father. Now that immediately throws us into another incredible mystery. 
called the Trinity, that God indeed is, is a tri-personal God, God the Father, the Creator, God the Son in Jesus who takes on human flesh, God becoming a man. And Luke, more than any of the Gospels, emphasizes the, both not only the divinity of Jesus, but the humanity of Christ. And then, of course, he is the one who is the perfect example, the most complete example of a person controlled by God's Spirit. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Could someone explain that to me? C.S. Lewis said, the Trinity must be true. No one could have ever thought it up. It's amazing. But it's God with us that Jesus is here. Now, just an aside for a minute. If Jesus is God, if Jesus, being who he is, needed to get away and to withdraw from the crowds, to be alone with his Father, to commune with God so that he could then be energized and given the power to do the incredible works of ministry that he did. If Jesus, being who he was, needed to get away, how much more do you and I, being who we are, need to withdraw from the crowd? I do solitude pretty well. I like to be by myself. I don't do silence very well. But when I do, when I get away just to be with God, amazing things happen. Thoughts, solutions, empowerment, humility, perspective. Martin Luther once said that he had so much to do that day that he was going to spend the first two hours praying. That's where the source of energy was from. So that's just a first perspective here as we look at who this Jesus, what it means to follow him. I had the example Get away. Uh, the famous person I really uh, had the privilege of actually spending a little time with and seeing him, uh, his name is Kalistos Ware. He is the uh, Russian Orthodox or Greek Orthodox bishop in England. He looks like, uh, was it Gandorf, you know, the Lord of the Rings? You know, long flowing beard. He's, he's up in years, and he speaks with such incredible humility and authority at the same time. And he was talking about prayer, and he spoke for an hour and a half and just, just riveted us. And he summarized his spirituality, spirituality by saying two things. And he, always, he would roll his R's with his British accent. He said, we need to do two things. We need to create silence. We need to create silence. Make space. Then the other thing he said was, we need to see Christ everywhere. And that's another sermon. But that, it, it just has always stuck with me. So create silence. Jesus did that. He made space for his walk with God, his Father. So let's get to the story. So here you have Jesus in a house, probably a fairly large, one of the larger houses, because it said it has tile roofs, so it could have been a little more expensive, wealthier people, but he was in a house, and he was, again, the crowds were forming, and it says the crowds came from all around uh, the, the surrounding area, from Galilee, from Jerusalem, and who was in that crowd? 
Well, you had probably curiosity seekers. You had people who were really looking to be touched by Jesus. They, they had heard that he heals, and they were sick and ill, and there were people who, were, who were just were looking for help. And, and then you've got these other people in the crowd called Pharisees, and you've got scribes or, or the religious rule experts. And they sort of had their own movement going. Uh, they were convinced that their particular brand of legalism, of, of basically adding laws onto the law of God to make sure people were much more strict in how they were keeping the law, that was more and more people doing that would bring the kingdom back, bring the kingdom back to Israel. And they were beginning to become suspicious to the point where the whole second year of Jesus' ministry is often called the year of opposition. And of course, the last year becomes his passion, his suffering, his crucifixion. They turned on him because he was a threat to them. So here we are in this scene, and Jesus is, uh, is surrounded. He's teaching and this crowd of people. And so here you have a man who has a problem. This particular man is paralyzed. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, or perhaps you know someone who is. Paralysis of this kind would actually form your life. It would form your identity. You become a person who, who experiences helplessness. You can't move anywhere without help. He was desperate, probably desperate in the sense of hopeless and helpless. But then something else happened. This desperation took on another flavor because he recognized, after hearing so much about Jesus, and the fact that he had four friends. Mark tells us that there were four friends who were actually convinced that Jesus could do something in this man's life. And he decides they're going, to, they're going to get into the presence of Jesus. They're going to get to a place where Jesus will be able to, to touch this person's life. And so what do they do? They have him on a stretcher, sort of a portable bed, a cot. And they're going towards this house. And all of a sudden, they get near the house, and they realize the house is totally surrounded. There's people hanging out the windows and the doors. And how are we possibly going to get to go to see Jesus? And so they turned around and said, well, I guess we should go home. Is that what they said? No, did you pick up what they did? Here's some curiosity and creativity that takes shape. So picture a Middle Eastern house that has an outside stairway that goes up onto a flat roof. They basically squirm their way through the crowd and walk up on top of the roof and decide that they are going to do what? They're going to tear through the roof. They are so desperate. They are so convinced that this is going to happen. Nothing's going to be an obstacle for them. And Mark literally says they, they unroofed the roof. So, so picture this. Put yourself in the story for a minute. You're a paralyzed man. You're thankful for friends who are actually, you know, going to take you to, to be with Jesus, hopefully. And you go up on the roof, and, and then inside the room is Jesus teaching, occupied with, with what's going on with this crowd of people. And all of a sudden, you just picture Jesus standing there with, and all of a sudden, dust. It's falling down on his head. And then you hear sounds of crackling and breaking and, you know, zuba, zuba. You don't know what's going on. But somehow they got through this roof. They actually, now, they didn't have to just cut a little hole in the roof. 
they had to let down a cot with a man on it. So they had to cut a hole in the roof big enough to lower their friend down in front of Jesus. You can imagine Jesus looking up and four little faces coming over the edge of the hole, you know? What would you do at that point? What would you say? Let's read the rest of the story. What happened? When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. And then the experts in the law and the Pharisees begin, began to think in themselves to themselves, who is this man who is uttering blasphemies? Theological error, insight, or insults toward God. Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their hostile thoughts, he said to them, why are you raising objections within yourself? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man, which is a designation Jesus used for himself, that comes from the real right interpretation of Daniel, so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, stand up, take your stretcher, and go home. Immediately, he stood up before them, picked up the stretcher he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God, praising God. And then astonishment seized them all, and they glorified God. And they were filled with awe, saying, we have seen incredible things today. <laughs> As you can only imagine. Now, Notice Jesus' response. He didn't say, uh, do you realize you're disrupting this entire gathering? He didn't say, uh, you know, who's going to fix the roof? He said, it says that he saw their faith. Very, very interesting. He saw their faith. What is faith? Faith is more than just an inner attitude. Faith is an active trust. And throughout the, the New Testament, you see people coming and putting their trust in, in God, trust in Jesus. And, and there's all different myriads. As, as many people as there are, there are different ways that people come to know Jesus. But faith is a common denominator, and faith always has some action assigned to it or in connection to it. In other words, there's another story where a woman who has had a terrible illness all her life, a bleeding illness, and she's in a crowd, but she reaches out and touches Jesus' garment, thinking, you know, I'm not even worthy to, to meet him, but I'm going to just touch his garment. And of all the people rubbing around him, he recognizes that touch and heals her. Zacchaeus is a tax collector we'll see later in Luke. He's, uh, he's not considered uh, as someone who would be uh, expected to be at all around Jesus or very religious. He was really an outcast and considered to be a despicable, uh, self-serving extortioner. 
which he was. But he was curious, and he knew something was going on, and he actually climbs up into a tree like a little kid to see Jesus passing by. And Jesus sees that act and calls him down and said, Zacchaeus, I'm going to come and eat with you today. And Zacchaeus has a dramatic turnaround to the point where he gives away his wealth and becomes a person who actually gathers other tax collectors, as we'll see with Matthew a little bit later. So, so Jesus always, and think, think of this. There's a story of Jesus when he's on the cross, and there are several things that are said that Jesus spoke when he was on the cross. You know what one of them was? The person next to him, both people next to him were, were thieves. And one of the thieves mocked him said, if you're the son of God, why don't you just, uh, you know, save yourself and us. But the other thief very humbly looked at him and said, Lord, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? What did Jesus say to him? I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That simple asking. That man did not have time to learn the law. He didn't have time to repent. He didn't have time to be baptized. He didn't have time to, to go into to classes. He simply reached out to Jesus, and Jesus saw his faith. So, so Jesus sees the faith. How did he see it? Well, he saw it because he recognized these people are desperate. These people really mean what they say when they want to see me, when they really trust that this, this could be a life change in, for them and for their friend. And he recognized the faith of the friend and the person. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful picture. And so they, they let him down right in their midst. Now, the first thing Jesus says to the person is not, rise up, you're healed. He says something very interesting. He says, your sins are forgiven. Now, at first glance, you might look at that and say, well, is this some superstitious, old-fashioned idea that all of our illnesses are connected somehow to our own doings, our own sin? Absolutely not. How do I know that? Because Jesus made that very clear several times, including in John's Gospel, chapter 9. He's with his disciples, and there's a man who's been born blind. And the first thing out of the disciples' mouths is, well, what happened? Why is this man blind? It was because of his sin or his parents' sin? And what does Jesus say? No, neither. This man is going to, to be actually healed and draw attention to God, but it's not because of his sin. So our illnesses, our sicknesses, our calamities, our suffering are not always connected with our sin, but they're always connected with sin, aren't they? Sin, think about this. Sin, or evil, is the universal distress of humanity. Someone has called it the vandalism of shalom. Shalom is God's flourishing, the way it ought to be. And every sin, every evil, is the destruction of that. It's the distress that comes into our lives. And so it's interesting, in the New Testament, when, when the church is called, when someone is sick, they say, call your elders, call your leaders and come and have them anoint you with oil, symbolic of the Holy Spirit, and, and have them pray for you. But also, he says, don't just have them pray for your physical illness, but also 
pray that you will be forgiven. So, in other words, it's not just a matter of saying, how is your body? Are you getting well physically? But also, how is your spirit? Not just are you walking with your friends now, but are you now going to walk with God? I have the privilege of being a chaplain in a hospital. And it's exciting to know that spiritual care is very much a part of the team when it comes to caring for people. And that's a growing reality. But very often, my first words to a person as I walk into the room, and may I, I might not even know them, but here's what God has been working on with me, and that is simply realizing that God is already at work you know, our friend Callisto, see Christ everywhere. God's already at work. So when I ask a person, so tell me your story. I don't mean your, I don't mean your physical story. I've read your medical record. Tell me about you. And then gradually asking them about their own spiritual journey. Because even though outwardly we may be struggling or even fading away, God looks at the heart, and God wants to be constantly renewing and giving new life to you wherever you are. So Jesus would always, he's not just concerned about healing people, as important and compassionate as that is. He's concerned about the whole person, always. So there's a few surprises. Obviously, the, uh, the religious leaders are not uh, excited. Why aren't they excited? Why aren't they saying, wow, isn't that exciting? Uh, this person is having their sins forgiven and they're being healed. Well, their reaction is, who do you think you are? There's only one who has the authority to forgive sins. And you just claim that for yourself? Who do you think you are? God? And Jesus is making a statement to them that he is indeed the prophesied son of man. It is a messianic claim for him to heal and to say, your sins are forgiven. And so it's natural that they were going to, uh, to be looking how to get rid of him pretty soon. Let me ask us a couple questions as you think about this story, as you sort of put yourself in this story a little bit. Uh, where are you in the story? Uh, perhaps you're, you're feeling a little bit per paralyzed. Perhaps there's a helplessness. You know, we use that word desperate. The word desperate. Desperate, think of it a little bit broader than just hopelessness. Think of it as urgency prompted by great need or great desire. Urgency. When you're desperate, there's an urgency to follow through on a desperate need that you recognize or a desperate desire, a desire to know God, a desire to be made well, a desire to have purpose in life. My journey to Jesus Christ was not out of fear. It was not out of fear of death. It was not out of any fear of some kind of hell. My journey to Jesus Christ was that I had a fear of living my life without any clear sense of purpose or what my story meant. And when I started to read about Jesus Christ, I was attracted to 
Jesus. I wanted to be like Jesus. I wanted to know more about Jesus. I wanted to know what his death and resurrection meant for me. And if he really was alive today, what is that going to do to change my life? Let me tell you another story. A story of a different kind of desperation. There was a couple in our church. I pastored at Christ Church in East Greenwich for 20 years. And there was a young couple who began coming to our church. He was raised, uh, he was an Italian uh, Catholic family, uh, raised in, in the church, but never had really made it his own. And so he was sort of dormant. And then he married uh, his wife. They were both lawyers, which probably makes for some great arguments and trials. <laughs> anyway. They were both, both lawyers. And, and she was raised not just uh, in, in a nominal setting, not just uh, without concern about uh, religion or spirituality. She was raised to be skeptical. She was raised to not get involved with anything religious. She was raised to distrust and to assume that there was nothing there for her. And yet, as often happens, you start having children, you realize, hmm, I have moral responsibility for these little human beings, and uh, they're supposed to follow me, so I, maybe I should figure out where I'm going. And so they decided, let's, let's find you know, a church community that maybe we could both be involved in. They end up being invited to Christ Church. They, they loved it. They started getting involved in the community. They were learning and growing. And then it comes to this place where one day uh, the wife, we'll call her Laura, comes into my office, and she said, I, I've been thinking about whether or not I should be baptized. Now, once a year, we have an outdoor baptism. It's a great celebration down at, at Goddard Park. And, and so she had seen that before, and she was looking at it, and she knew that baptism had something to do with, like, you know, following Jesus seriously and um, identifying with him. And, and yet she had these questions. So even though she was very gracious and, and eager to learn, she, she came in and sat down. She'd been reading books. She's been studying. She's been thinking. But she has this analytical mind. And she said, I, 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 love, I feel like I want to follow Jesus, but I have all these questions. I don't think I can do it if I'm, if I'm still questioning things like, you know, miracles. Or You know what her biggest thing is? Which is for many of us. It's like, how do you make sense out of the suffering and the injustice it just seems rampant. It doesn't seem to change. And it's like, I, and not only that, you've got all the debacles in the Christian world and the church seems like a bad advertisement for Jesus. Yeah. So then we started talking. And I said, uh, I don't know if I used the word desperate at that point or not, but you're really, you're really seeking. Yeah, I said, let me ask you a question. I said, uh, you love your husband, right? Oh, yeah. How'd you fall in love with him? She told me your story a little bit. She says, yeah. I said, you know, when you saw some good qualities in him and that he was, you know, intellectually compatible, did that make you married? No. No, no. I said, well, when, when, you, when you felt romantic uh, impulses and, and you fell head over heels for him and you were attracted to one another, did that make you automatically married? No. So what makes you married? He says, well, we committed ourselves to one another. 
I said, let me tell you something. If you approach the relationship with your to-be husband the way you're approaching a relationship with Jesus, you would not be married right now because you would never know enough about him. You'd never know whether you could totally trust him forever. You would never know if, if everything is going to be exactly as you would hope to be. But why did you get married? Because you knew enough, and you knew you loved him, and you knew you wanted that relationship with him, and that other things would then work themselves out as you did it together. I said, I think Jesus is saying to you, come and, and join me. Be with me. Be the one whom your soul loves. Say yes. I think Jesus is telling, asking you to say yes to him. And you know what's going to happen then? Then, together with Jesus, he is more than eager to allow you to search out those questions, to walk through the hard times together. He's with you in it. And that just sort of a light bulb went on, and she realized it was about having Jesus in that relationship at the center of her life. And then from there... <laughs> Then you sort out. Then you go back out and you begin to, to go through life. But you come from that place of Christ at the center where things begin to make sense and you have perspective and you have meaning and you have purpose. It's very exciting. Are we desperate? Are you desperate? Are, are you desperate to be healed? There's another place where Jesus actually asks a, someone who's another person who's paralyzed who'd been there for 30 years. 30 years waiting to, for something to happen that might be, he might be healed by. And Jesus looks at him and says, do you want to be healed? And you might, you know, with all due respect, Jesus, I've been here for 30 years. What do you think? Dumb question? Not really. Do you want to be healed? Because sometimes, you know what happens? We get comfortable with our dysfunction. We get comfortable with our addictions. It feels like too much of a risk or too much work. Or we don't know if we have the friends and the support around us to make that step of faith to say, I want to be healed. I don't want to be stuck anymore. I pray that this will be continue to be a church community where you are no, you've got friends who are going to not only carry you on the stretcher, but hold the ropes down in front of Jesus and walk with you for the rest of your days as you walk through, as I walk through those places where we need the touch of Jesus. On the other side of that desperation question, I would say, are you, are you and I desperate to really help our friends get to Jesus when they, when they know that that's, that's the need? Are we there to really walk with one another? John, I'll, I'll end with this. John Maxwell is uh, probably one of the elder statesmen of leadership. Not only Christian leadership, but leadership in general, known throughout the world. Published about 50 books. And he spoke in front of a, of a uh, telecast of hundreds of thousands of people. And he made this statement. He said, I've con I'm convinced that leadership comes down to this one thing. He says, it's adding value to people. 
And you can't add value to people if you don't value people. And then he said this, and I've heard dozens and dozens of people say it's the one thing from this entire conference that, that stood with them. He says, I'm, in, I'm tired of, of being in, in this case, Christian circles where the focus is more on correcting people than on connecting to people. Let's make sure we are connecting with people, accepting, acknowledging, reaching out with compassion, with mercy, not judgment, and recognizing that everyone is hungry and thirsty. Everyone is fighting a great battle, as someone said. Let's be those who are desperate, not only for our own needs, but to reach out in the circle of influence that God puts us in to be able to make a difference in someone's life, to do what it takes to be with them, with compassion, with initiative, with creativity, with helping them see who Jesus really is. Will you pray with me? Lord, with all the noise all the distractions, with all the things that make our spirituality and our, our faith seem so complex and sometimes convoluted and dark, I, I pray that you'd bring a desperate simplicity to us, that we would long and love to be with you. Well, some of us may be in that place of skepticism, and, and yet we know that, that we're here for a reason, that we're, we're longing, we're seeking a purpose, something that would make sense of our lives, something to give our lives to. Lord, for some of us, we're seeking that sense of vision and purpose for our lives. And all we know is that to follow you is the first place to go. So I pray that again, we'd come back to that center of time with you, of being equipped and empowered by you and by the community that we're around. Lord, we say here that, that we want to join God in the restoration of all things. And Lord, we thank you for the privilege that that is, that in all of our spheres of influence, all of our work, everything we do, every person we meet has meaning, value. You want to use us. It's such a privilege to be a part of what you're doing. So, Lord, thank you. As we come to the communion table, we're reminded that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples, to his gathered community, and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, said, This is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Lord, for centuries, Christians have used the words of invitation that we would feed on him in our hearts by faith. Lord, just as Jesus did not get energized by the crowds, but by communion with you, so we would be energized by communion with you. And thank you that you are in our midst. And we give you praise. In your name we pray.